Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Jacqueline Woodson, whose latest novel is Another Brooklyn. It's her first adult novel in 20 years. She's the author of a lot of young adult and middle school books and a memoir, Brown Girl Dreaming. One of her books became a miniseries called Miracles Boys, which we'll talk about because I looked at some of the directors and they include Spike Lee. But first, let's talk a little bit about Another Brooklyn. The book concerns four girls, teenagers. They're actually about 10 when they meet. And then they go to around 17, 18. Even though it's billed as an adult novel, it struck me that it could certainly be called a young adult novel because it deals with issues of people who are growing up teenagers. Was that decision a marketing decision? No. What makes it, I like to say, a novel with adults as the main characters is that it's told from an adult perspective and the adult is looking back on her life whereas with young adult and middle grade we're usually in the moment of the protagonist's life so they're not adults but they're young people and we're getting it from that perspective. So the perspective is different and from from your point of view that makes it an adult novel. It makes it a novel starring adults but I do think young people could read it. <laughs> that, that was my thought. In fact it struck me that more than most books I've read about young people it gets into their heads and it takes place in the 70s and I guess the protagonist August is about your age. She's actually a little bit older than I am. I was five in 68, and 68 she is nine. The background, being in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and being in that time and dealing with your contemporaries is pretty much the same, even though the characters are fictional. Even though the characters are fictional, but the neighborhood isn't. What brought you to work on Another Brooklyn? What started it? Was it August's voice? No, it was a good question because my books are usually character-driven, and the character is usually a person. In that case, the character for me was the neighborhood of Bushwick, uh, which is the neighborhood I grew up in, and I wanted to put that neighborhood on the page as it existed during the time when I knew it, but I also wanted to create a fictional narrative around it. So it wasn't the voice of August that drove the narrative, but it was that the physicality of Bushwick and that changing landscape that was really the inspiration. And once you decided, okay, I'm going to write Brooklyn and set it in the 70s, you had to have characters. And at that Mm -hmm. point, were you thinking, I'm going to have this group of girls together, or were you thinking August first? I was thinking the group of girls because I knew I wanted to write about friendship and how it comes together, the intimacy of it, and when it falls apart. 
you've got the idea, and then you have to come up with the girls, and you have to come up with a point of view character. At this point, is that when August suddenly appears? <laughs> yes, August is finally on the stage now. It's a layering process, so I knew that she was going to be a transplant into Brooklyn, and I knew she was going to be the one to come into the friendship with the other girls. But there was a lot of stuff still at that point that I didn't know. But yes, August is now on stage. The parallel to your own life is that she comes from Tennessee at around the age of seven-ish, and you come from South Carolina Mm -hmm. around the same time. Mm -hmm. From that perspective, her eyes seeing Brooklyn as a new location is very similar to yours, I would think, or how you imagined it might be, not that you can remember. I definitely mind my own childhood and that part of the Great Migration. Also what I've read and known about the Great Migration and what it means for young people to be transplanted from a rural setting to an urban setting. I think for a lot of writers it is that composite, you know, the memory, the emotional memory, and then the facts that you mine from your own experiences. Well, you talk about the Great Migration in terms of yourself and August, but of course the Great Migration in itself was the post-World War II migration north and west. The Great Migration that I'm talking about is the migration of you know millions of African Americans out of the south to the north from the early 1900s to the mid-1970s. Millions okay. of people left those really oppressive conditions and came to New York and Chicago and L.A. and places where they had more opportunity for their young people and for themselves. So in Another Brooklyn, the characters are coming from the Great Migration, and they're also coming to New York through um, immigration. You create the four girls so that one is from Brooklyn, one is coming from the South, and one is coming from the Caribbean, and Mm -hmm. then there's Mm -hmm. August. Well, Angela, we're not quite sure where she comes from, but August is definitely coming from Tennessee. So once you have August and you're looking outward, where are you drawing the other girls from? Everywhere. (laughs) You know, I was trying to create some people who could help me move the narrative along. And I always say there's some Jacqueline Woodson in every single character I put on the page. So in that case, from the father to the brother to Sylvia, Angela, Gigi, August, and the mother to the uncle. At the same time, I had to write and rewrite and layer until I got these girls to be very distinct, not only from each other, but very different from me, too, because I don't don't want to put four Jacqueline Woodsons on the page. That's a boring story, but I want to put the essence of girlhood on the page, and that's the part that Jacqueline Woodson brings to that narrative and then creates the characters around it. In an interview, you said, I sit with my characters and feel them out. Did you do that in this case? And sort of what does that mean? In this case, I listened to them. I spent a lot of time just writing dialogue and having them say things and then looking at what they said and trying to figure out what the bigger story was supposed to say, but also what their bigger story was. And so that really came with a lot of silence, a lot of rewriting, a lot of reading it out loud, a lot of trying to imagine their physical appearances, how they walked and what they wanted, and of course, how they were going to get it. 
in your head, the biographies, of course, then were far more extensive than anything that wound up on the printed page. I think that's always the case for writers. <laughs> we know a lot more about our characters than we put on the page because we have to. At a certain point, you know your characters. You have a sense. Is that the point where the story itself, what the girls do, how they interact and where they go, is that when it emerges or does it emerge more from, okay, I'm going to start writing and see where it goes? The starting to write and seeing where it goes comes when I'm trying to develop the characters. And I knew what I was trying to say. I knew what I was trying to talk about. And that's when I start shaping the story. I wanted, again, to talk about friendships and what happens when they start falling apart and how they fall apart and who we grow up to be without our friends and who we are with our friends. So these girls created this kind of human shield for each other against the world, and then there came the point when they weren't there. But I also had to concentrate on August. What was her story? What did she want? And who was she becoming? And so that thing comes into weaving the narrative of the anthropologist looking back and how that feeds into the whole story. And so that's yet another rewrite. So, and that's where you begin looking and going, this is the point where I add sections about what's happening in these other societies. That's the first time I added them. Then I had to look at the novel and say, why is this section about this death ritual right here? What does mm. it have to do with the narrative at this point? And why did I lay this one down right here? No, that doesn't work there because the, what the reader has just read has nothing to do with what this death ritual is um, implying. So then it comes the point of yet another rewrite. At a certain point, as I was reading Another Brooklyn, I noticed that it was always there what happened to her mother because mm-hmm. she comes to Brooklyn with her father and brother. Her mother is gone. And we sort of know what happened, even if she doesn't know what mm-hmm. happened. But it seemed, to me at least, that as the book continued, the story of the girls, I don't want to say it got subsumed, but the larger story became the story of the search for her mother. And I don't know if that was unconscious coming out or what. It's a good question. I feel like her mother is always overshadowing the novel, even though she's, quote unquote, not there. There's this way in which August throughout has a hard time letting go. The girls come in and they help her forget that longing and that grieving and give her this other side to her life. And then as that begins to fall apart, when, when her heart gets broken by her friends, basically, and she gets silent, that's when she has to start really deconstructing where she's at and what she's doing. And that's when her father sends her to Sister Sonia and all of that begins to happen. So that's, you know, the book opens for a long time. My mother wasn't dead yet. And that's because she hasn't gotten to that point when she can let her mother go. In your case, you were raised by a single mother? I was raised by my mom and grandma. Uh, yeah. So you didn't have a father in the scene. So this is kind of a I reversal. Did. Well, I actually did. My mother and father got back together when I was a young teen, and then they stayed together till I went away to college. So the characters in another Brooklyn, one thing I tried to show is how the community kind of takes care of each other. And I feel like that was definitely 
my case, I was raised by my mom and grandmother. So I, I, I was raised in a very solid household in that there were two parents in the household and there were four kids and there were boundaries. And we were thriving and striving, right? Because my mother came here for better opportunities for us, came to New York. So I remember like the first time I heard someone say broken home and a broken home meant a household where there wasn't a heterosexual married couple in it. And I just thought, that's not us. Like, you know, what makes that broken when people have different ways of having family? So I feel like in the case of my own upbringing, it was a very protective household like August and her dad and that way that her father is so overprotective. But at the same time, you know, when you read Brown Girl Dreaming, you see that there was a lot of love there. Your mother also made sure that you didn't watch TV and you read. We don't really have TV in our house in Brooklyn. And we had cable and I noticed no one was watching it. I mean, it's down on the bottom floor of our house. And it took my kids six months to realize we didn't have cable anymore. And then they tried to get mad. I'm like, you haven't even noticed it was gone. <laughs> so so we do try to move them away from screens and into books. And fortunately, they're readers. I found the secret is to leave books in their bathroom. And so when they get in there, they're like, hey, what's this? And it completely works. This is a sequence fairly early in the book where the adult August sees her friend Sylvia on the subway and they have a short conversation. And it's very early on, it's not a giveaway. And she gets up and deliberately walks off the subway. Before her stop. And I kept thinking, why? Do you know why in your head why she did it or was it just like the character said, I'm walking off? No, at that point I knew what she was going to do because again, that was probably about the 15th rewrite, and at that point, going back, I knew what had happened toward the end of the book, and I knew that in the laying down of the next layer of the story, I had to have this scene where she meets up with Sylvia again and almost loses her voice again and then saves herself. It seemed to me overall, Jacqueline Woodson, that another Brooklyn, probably not your intention, almost read like a 170-page poem. That's a total compliment. There was a review which said, I love the book, I wish there were more to fill it out, and I'm thinking, that's not how a poem works. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and it's, it's interesting that people want more and that I think people are sometimes intimidated by white space in a book, um, where they're not intimidated by it if it's a collection of poetry, right? But in Another Brooklyn, I was really trying to marry the narrative and the intentionality of language and poetry and you know, bring them together to create this work of fiction where you read it slowly because you were taking in the way it was laid down on the page. And so, um, so you know, you read a line and you think, oh, I'm not sure what that meant or what the author's intention. Let me go back and read it again. I get it now. Now this line is going to feed into the next one, and eventually I'm going to find out where the story's going. But I think people look at it and they see this thin book and they see white space and they think, I can rip through this quickly. And that's not my intention for readers. And it can be read so many different ways, too, which is the beauty of it. 
Yeah, that was my intention. And again, with that white space, having the reader just take a breath and kind of using it as a signal to you can you can pause here. You you can wait here and you can, you can go back or just take a minute before you move on to the next paragraph. There's a section involving black Muslims. Did you do research on that or is that from your own history? It's both. When I was a child, I was raised Jehovah's Witness and my uncle had been incarcerated and when he came out of prison, he had converted and he was part of the Nation of Islam. So he lived with us, so we had both religions in our house. So I knew a lot about the Nation of Islam, but there was a lot I didn't remember, a lot I didn't know, so that's where I went back and researched. How about 70s music? <laughs> some of it has never left me, <laughs> and some of it I, I researched by asking other people who remembered that era. I also researched online to see what the music was of that period so I could be accurate in not saying that, you know, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life was around in 1971, which it wasn't, so I didn't want to make those kind of mistakes. Well, you got Rock the Boat 1973. You got that right. <laughs> It was also the era of Biafra, Son of Sam. Did you do research on that? Yes. I remember Son of Sam. I remember my own mother talking about Biafra and it being so completely theoretical to me because I, you know, and because that was kind of the refrain of parents, children are starving in Biafra. That's why we should be grateful. That's why we should eat all the food on our plate. By the time I was an adult, of course, I understood what she was talking about. But then I went back and researched that and researched where the son of Sam, where um, David Ber Berkowitz was killing people and who he was killing so that it could work in the narrative. There's a sequence where they're all very much afraid to go into Manhattan because they hear stories of girls being taken. Did you hear those stories? I did not hear those stories in my neighborhood from the grown-ups I knew. My sister started going into Manhattan in the seventh grade. People were going into Manhattan all the time. I think part of what I was doing there, there's a sense of Brooklyn during that time is this dangerous place, right? And I wanted to show that for Brooklynites, Manhattan felt like the dangerous place, or Queens could be the dangerous place, or Staten Island could be the dangerous place. But at that time, it was also before they cleaned up, quote-unquote, Times Square, so there was a lot of prostitution, there was a lot of um, drug selling, and there were definitely girls who disappeared, right, who ran away or whose whereabouts were unknown, but not necessarily from my neighborhood. I never knew any girls who went into Manhattan and disappeared. We always thought of that happening to young people from other states. Were you in a more middle-class environment than uh, August, or was it similar? Bushwick was pretty underserved at that time. But my specific block was a block of strivers, right? Because they had come over. My mother had a full-time job when we were ready to go to college. She made too much money for us to get scholarship money. You know, we weren't on public assistance. But that was like one block in Bushwick and then on other blocks. And there were poorer kids on our block. And there were poorer kids on other blocks. But it was interesting in terms my mother never let us wear anything other than cotton or linen for a long time. And in the 70s, when polyester came out, we were like a hot mess, right? Because everyone had the fabulous shirts and we were like wearing linen and cotton. So I think my mother had very, very middle class 
values, quote unquote, and had this sense of us as other. I think part of that came from being Jehovah's Witness in the sense of you're in the world, but not of the world. When we first came from South Carolina, she really struggled because it was new and she didn't have a really great job. But by the time I was eight or nine, we were pretty okay. (laughs) Is a little of that Jehovah's Witness element sort of in the Muslim element in the book, you think? No, no. In Brown Girl Dreaming, there's a lot of the Jehovah's Witness stuff. But in another Brooklyn, there's Nation of Islam and there's the Christian Church. There's a line where August is looking out and seeing the poverty, particularly the little kids, and she's going, you know, if Mr. Softy comes around, we know we can always get our, our mm-hmm. ice cream. And I guess to that degree it was the same mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, sometimes my mother was like, no, I can't afford it. Or sometimes she was like, you don't need that sugar. <laughs> you know, it really depended. Sometimes we had our own money because we got an allowance and... If we had spent it on something else, then we were out of luck for the ice cream. <laughs> Jacqueline Woodson, let's talk a little about your career now. So you grew up in in uh, in Bushwick. And by the way, what's Bushwick like now? Now Bushwick is a very hipster neighborhood. It's a lot of well-to-do kids from other places who a lot of times their parents are paying their rents, a lot of artists, a lot of students, kind of the place to go for hipster restaurants and stuff. In the 70s, the city came and planted a whole bunch of trees on our block, so now our block is a tree-lined, beautiful block. It's changed a lot, and that was one of the reasons for writing what I wrote in the front, that it's a memory of Bushwick 1970 to 1990, because I think it's important for people to know the history of where they lived. So it's a very different neighborhood, but what makes me so cranky, and I know this is happening a lot in Oakland too, is when people kind of claim they've quote unquote discovered a neighborhood or that a neighborhood is suddenly safe for people and disregard the people who it was historically safe for. And so Bushwick was always an amazing neighborhood for me and now it's an amazing neighborhood for other people. When my nephew was in his 20s, he lived in um, Carroll Gardens Mm -hmm. and you had the hipsters and you had the old Italian families right next to each other Mm -hmm. in brownstones. Yes, yes. And that's changing now, I guess, everywhere. Um, Carroll Gardens is interesting because it's changing, but it's still not a lot of people of color because the homeowners will not rent to people of color. And so it's mainly old Italian folks who won't rent to people of color and white hipsters. So it's still very white. Definitely the energy of the white people that are living there is changing. My niece lived for a while in Fort Greene, which is right near Bushwick, I guess. Greene, then Bed-Stuy, then Bushwick, yeah. And that was changing when she bought her condo. It was beginning to change. She was part of the change. Yeah, that's Spike Lee's hood. So that was old, you know, black folks coming in and buying homes. It was a pretty solid African-American neighborhood. Well, she was the only one of the few white people on the block. Uh But the neighborhood felt safe. It felt fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, I think it is. I think it was really safe, as was Bushwick for a lot of people. Jacqueline Woodson, let's talk about your career. So you were reading and you also were telling stories. And in one of the interviews, you did a lot of lying. But you were also writing as a little kid. Mm -hmm. I've always loved the physical act of writing. So as soon as I could write my name and realize that, you know, letters made words, it kind of blew my mind. And I, I, I just 
was saying from a really young age that I wanted to be a writer. Do you remember the books that you were reading that got you into writing? Yeah, I love John Steptoe's Stevie. I read Langston Hughes. I remember listening to an album that was Nikki Giovanni's poetry, and it blew my mind. <laughs> I was listening to... Al Green. I mean, even Al Green, his songs were stories in this way that the words were so much more important to me than the music. Then later on, you know, after Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou, Eloise Greenfield, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Raymond Carver, um, Carson McCullers, like the writers, once the door got unlocked, it was just a downpour. What was the difference or was there a difference between reading poetry in those days or reading literature? I read the poets that I understood. There were, you know, even at that age, um, Blake and Cummings even, William Butler Yeats, there were poets that were still kind of incomprehensible for me. And so when I read, I remember reading Langston Hughes' Mother to Son, Well, Son, I Tell You, Life for Me Ain't Been No Crystal Stair, Has Cracks in It in Places with No Rug on the Floor Bare. And understanding what he was saying or what happens to a dream deferred. So that was the big thing for me, to read poets that I understood the stories they were telling through their poems. And you went to college? I went to Adelphi, which is in Garden City. That's when you started writing uh, last summer? Yes. Last summer with Mason, I was writing when I was in college. During the summer, I took a writing workshop at the new school, and that's where I polished it, and it got sold. How did it get sold? There was an editor in the writing class I was taking, and the teacher read part of it out loud, and she approached me and asked if I would submit it to what was then Bantam Doubleday Dell, which is now Random House. And I laughed because Random House was my publisher for many years, and then I moved to Penguin, and now Random House and Penguin have merged, so I'm back home. <laughs> Engulf and devour. Yes. <laughs> How did you get involved in focusing on young adult and middle school books? It's pretty much where I found my voice as a writer. And even when I was writing very early on, because I was writing from the point of view of young people, someone said this is young people's literature, and that's what I kept doing because I love being able to tell those stories. And one thing, when I was a kid... There weren't a ton of books out there that were telling stories about people who look like me, who lived like I did, who have family structures like my family structure. And I wanted to write those stories. I think I wanted to fill that hole that should have been filled because I wanted it filled. So for me, it was a good thing that it wasn't filled because it definitely gave me the drive to do this work. But um, at the same time, it's sad that in the 70s, so many of us didn't have these mirrors and didn't have books that reflected our experiences in that way. When you began writing, I would guess you had no problem publishing any of these works. I didn't, you know, because I already had a publisher. I had Bantam Doubleday Dell. So when I, after Last Summer with Maze, and I wrote a book called The Dear One about uh, teenager who's pregnant. It's about the pregnancy, but it's also about economic class in the black community, the different economic class stuff. And and I had an editor, Wendy Lamb, who basically said, nothing you can write is wrong. You know, we want these stories. And, and so she really did kind of give me the license to write what I wanted to write. And I really wanted to write the stories of people, again, who had historically not 
seen the light of day in literature. So, When you're writing this, do you have anything, any political or social agenda, or does that just come out of the characters? In, I think I don't have a political or social agenda. That said, I'm a political person, and I believe in social justice. I believe that everyone has a right to be able to walk through the world and be seen. I think that we all have stories and a right to tell them. So so I think it does come through on the page, but I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write this story that's going to teach the world about this, because then the books would be didactic and no one would read them. So when you're starting, you know, you talk about the characters, but on some level you're starting with an idea. Okay, we're going to have a pregnancy here. So with the dear one, I knew that a Fanny, a pregnant teenager, was going to end up spending her time pregnant with an affluent family, a black family, and that the mothers would have gone to Spelman together. That's, you know, what I knew. I wanted to put a Fanny 15 in the room with the other character to see what happened, what kind of judgment happened, and what, you know, do they become friends, do they not become friends? But it wasn't because I wanted to, I'm sorry, Afeni wasn't the one that was pregnant. Afeni was the girl. I I, um, wanted to see what happened when they got together and how would they grow, how would they change. And I always say I write because I have questions, not because I have answers. And I had all these questions about what does it mean to be a young person and be pregnant? That was never me. What does it mean when your family takes someone in who you don't know and you have your own set of judgments about? What does it mean to have known someone in college and you go on to be really wealthy and successful and they they struggle financially and you know have a mental breakdown and all of that stuff? So I was... All of those questions were swirling in my head. And so um, Rebecca, the pregnant girl, was just one of the many questions (laughs) that ended up landing on the page. Well, do you go through that same number of revisions for those books as you did for another Brooklyn? Yeah, uh, that for a different reason, because I was so new to writing and I didn't know what I was doing. So I was making a lot of mistakes and rewriting. With Brown Girl Dreaming, I rewrote it about 31 times before it was the book that you see there. That one, it was about reading it out loud and it was about arcing the narrative. Then it was about each of the verses, how they were put down on the page. Where did I break the line? What poems didn't need to be there. What was that? Where were the gaps in the narrative? So, And then for another Brooklyn, it was that layering. Let me get all of this information about the girls and about um, anthropology and about Bushwick and about Nation of Islam and about, you know, death and dying. All of that had to be on the page and it had to make sense before I could let the book go. When you're saying it had to make sense, do you have specific readers that you go to and say, so, what do you think? (laughs) Tosha Regan reads all my work and helps me make sense of what I'm saying. And um, my partner, Juliet, reads everything. But at the end of the day, it has to make sense to me. And if it doesn't, if I read it out loud and I'm not feeling what I'm trying to get on the page, it's not working. How do you know when you're done? You know, you know, the book tells you, you you write that last line and something just kind of 
exhales in you and says, you've said what you needed to say. The book has done what it needs to do. You can stop now. When you send it to the editor, you expect the editor to go, no changes? Or? Well, when I send it to Nancy Paulson, who's my editor for my young adult and middle grade stuff, I, I send it to her and say, I just finished a book, and I expect her to go, this is a great beginning, <laughs> which she does. <laughs> What she does a lot, and it, it always makes me laugh because um, even that I'm happy to hear. And then a whole other set of work begins. I have a different editor for another Brooklyn, so I had two editors on another Brooklyn, and um, Rosemary was my main editor, and she really just asked me questions. You know, why is this character here? What is she doing? Why is this section here as opposed to being there? And you know, you might want to take another look at this area because I'm, I'm, I'm confused about what's going on. And then my editor, Tracy, did some of the same stuff and asked me some, a few questions. Rosemary was the one who I really went to the most. You've said in an interview that um, you don't believe in writer's block. Mm-mm. That if someone is writer's block, just it means you're not supposed to be writing that particular work mm-hmm. at that time. Is that right? Yeah, and I think it's fear. I think that the thing that stops us is that fear. Are we going to be able to do this well? Is someone going to judge it? Am I going to fail? And and we just start kind of beating ourselves up and silencing ourselves. And and uh, I I always start with you know no one's ever going to see this. And what is what would it look like on the page if you wrote what no one was ever going to see? And then it frees you up to tell the truth. And then when you read it out loud, you know what you feel safe having in the world and what you want to edit out. But it's a beginning. So I, I don't, and especially young people, they're like, writer's block, I have writer's block. What do you do for writer's block? I'm like, oh, come on now. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Whenever I get nervous about doing an interview, I always say, you know, I never have to air it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Jacqueline Woodson, Miracle's Boys, a uh, six-part series aired on the N. I have no idea what that is. And <laughs> it then, didn't last that long. Huh? The end didn't last that long. <laughs> but then it aired on Teen Nick, and I guess mm-hmm. it's available now somewhere. On on Amazon. It's available through um, DVD, and, you know, I think you could stream it now. And the directors, including LeVar Burton, Ernest Dickerson, Bill Duke, and Spike Lee, how did that come about? It was the producers who got those directors together, and each of them, I don't remember it being LeVar Burton. I mean, it's LeVar did. on IMDb. Oh, really? Oh, because yeah. I know he was the, he, he did a lot of my Reading Rainbow books, and he's just so great. The producers got all four of them together, and they each directed different parts of the miniseries and different episodes. Did you get to meet Spike Lee? Yeah, I know Spike. How did it come out? How do you like it? The book is better. (laughs) It's the only one of your books that have been been optioned, uh, Uh, not optioned, actually come out. Yeah, Beneath a Meth Moon had been optioned, and Jonathan Demme was going to do the movie. I was really excited about that, and that fell apart. That's still under option, and Elle Fanning is playing the lead, and I forget who the producers are. I think they're the people who did um, Juno and the guy in the airport. Up in the air. Any interest in another Brooklyn yet, given the reviews? Not that I've heard. Are Brown Girl Dreaming? I think my books probably are a little harder to see on screen unless you're someone like um, Julie Dash who can see some, you know, the next Daughters of the Dust or 
something like that because it's literature, right? It's, I can't think of the word, but literary fiction. So it's hard to um, make that leap into the big screen. Well, the, the only advantage of something like Another Brooklyn would be that the length is closer to a screenplay length than a lot of novels. Mm, that's so true. You know, so that, that changes it. But then again, you've got to find the four right girls. Mm-hmm. And you've got to figure out how to translate poetry into image. Uh-huh. And it's a period piece, which people tend to shy away from because now I guess the 70s is considered a period. <laughs> you also work on um, picture books. Mm-hmm. And those are primarily poetry with images? Mm-hmm. And for younger people, right? So... Some of them are more poetic than others, but they are. I do. Con- I do think a lot about the line breaks and how the book sounds because it's a book that's meant to be read aloud. And that's Showway. Showway, the other side, each kindness, pecan pie, baby, our Gracian. We had a picnic this Sunday past visiting day. I've done a lot. And Jacqueline Woodson, are you working on a couple of books now? No, right now I'm reading friends' books and doing more editing, the stuff that I kind of put aside for a while until I was finished with my own stuff. But I'm going to start writing again at the end of October. Do you ever think about, like, writing science fiction or a crime novel or anything like that and just going (laughs) off the deep end? No, I never think about crime novels because uh, I don't have the patience to even read them. I want to go to the end and see what happens. So I can't even imagine letting myself write to the end. Uh, you you get, you know, one day happily ever after or something at the end. Uh, it would be a very short crime. But um, I do think about um, sci-fi speculative fiction at times, but I like realistic fiction. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.